So good afternoon, and I hope you had a good lunch. I thought that uh, we, it, it will be good if we do another meditation this afternoon, and, uh, but maybe not immediately, just after you've eaten. <laughs> so before then, and while you're digesting, Let's just see if there are some things uh, that you would like me to talk about before the weekend is over. Now, could be things like, I didn't really say much about the formless jhanas. I really didn't talk much about more, uh, very much about the deeper jhanas, um, and, and so forth. But uh, you've had a chance to look at the handout, and so just why don't you let me know what things there are that you would uh, like to spend a few minutes talking about while we have the time, and before we do that meditation. Yes? It seems like there are reference to hindrances I never heard of before. Hindrances? And it seems like there's this constant shift between um, <coughs> systems of well, this is the jhana system, and these are the stages of insight, and there's a correspondence between the two, and there's this, this, this I'm kind of at sea with the, the mapping. Okay, yeah, right. A little bit of or, orientation to the maps, okay. <clears throat> the ten stages of samatha vipassana, uh, I think you probably are all already familiar with that, but they are available uh, on the Dharma Treasure website. And with reference to those st stages, we've, we use a state corresponding to stage six as access for the ultralight jhanas, which we've done here today. And if you practice those jhanas, you, it will accelerate your uh, progress in in becoming a solid meditator at stage six and also stage seven and stages eight and nine. It will it will definitely improve your progress there. Uh, the light jhanas uh, of the Lee Brasington Ayakima sort are accessed from uh, stage seven of the Samatha Vipassana scheme. And uh, when you enter those jhanas, uh, basically, uh, as you move through the four jhanas, uh, you are, the jhanas themselves are very similar to moving through uh, the subsequent stages in the Samatha Vipassana practice. And the result of practicing those jhanas is to, uh, once again, it will accelerate your, you can use it to accelerate your progress through, through those. Now, I did make some reference to uh, the 16 stages in the progress of insight. And that is, the, the progress of insight, uh, it, it refers to a book written by Mahasi Sayadaw based on the Visuddhi Maga and has become pretty much the classic presentation of the dry vipassana method. And uh, it involves a series, uh, the, this, 
The progressive stages of insight are described as insight knowledges that a person acquires sequentially, and the insight knowledges go right through the insights corresponding to uh, a, uh, the achievement of uh, awakening, the, the uh, path and uh, fruition knowledges, to the review stage. So that's a different system of stages, quite different. Um, although all of the knowledges that uh, are described in that stage are potentially experienced as a part of the 10 stages, or if you become a 10th stage meditator with fully developed samatha, then you should rapidly be able to proceed to experience the knowledges from that 16-stage system that you haven't uh, already ha ha that haven't already arisen for you in the process of your training. The 16 stages are a dry vipassana method, and so there is one group of stages that's commonly known as the dukkha jnanas, or the knowledges of suffering. And for a meditator who does not have samatha, does not have piti, and has not, prior to that point, had some experience, some preliminary insights into no self and emptiness, those can be extremely difficult, disturbing stages. Uh, if you're doing a samatha practice, uh, they generally will not be difficult. Uh, you'll move through them quite, quite quickly, and they're not very disturbing at all. But they are two different systems, and if you're interested in the stages of insight, then I would suggest, yeah, I think you can download for free Mahasi Sayadaw's book. Uh, and if you want to go to the source of that, uh, there is, uh, the Sudhi Maga is very lengthy, uh, and it's it's pretty it's a pretty serious text. It takes it's some heavy reading, but it is uh, available. I think currently there's a two volume paperback edition published by Shambhala that's available, uh, certainly available from Amazon and other places of the Sudhimaga. The uh, the successor to Mahasi Sayadaw is Sayadaw Upandita. And Upandita wrote a book a number of years ago called uh, uh, In This Very Life. And in that book, he presents what he calls Vipassana Jhanas. And they correspond to certain stages in the, uh, in the 16 progressive stages of insight. If we look at those Vipassana jhanas, we see that they are, it's a really very different usage of the term jhana as compared to uh, what we find in the sutras, what the Buddha uh, spoke about and, and what we've been talking about this weekend. And it reflects the difference between dry vipassana and samatha vipassana. The biggest difference between dry vipassana and samatha vipassana is the absence of piti sukha uh, and
Of course, the jhanas that we've been talking about are defined in terms of piti and sukha as jhana factors. And the vipassana jhanas that Upandita describes, for the most part, don't involve those, uh, don't, don't involve piti and sukha. In the progressive stages of insight, the fourth knowledge, which is the knowledge of arising and passing away, has two parts to it. And in between those two parts comes what's called the knowledge of what is and is not the path. A meditator who arrives at the early knowledge of arising and passing away has a level of concentration that is approximately that of about a stage six samatha vipassana meditator. <clears throat> and as a result of that, there will arise piti and sukha, and equanimity and a lot of other factors. These are listed as uh, the 10 defilements of insight. <laughs> or imperfections of insight. Uh, but in the uh, in the Visuddhimagga and uh, by uh, Mahasi Sayada and Upandita in that system. If you are doing the noting practice that these adhere to, and you reach that level of concentration, and piti and sukha arise and you report it to your meditation teacher, the meditation teacher will tell you that you are not noting diligently enough and to go back and practice and note more diligently and the piti and sukha will go away and they certainly will. <laughs> and then, uh, with the level of concentration that you have, you arrive at the late stage of arising and passing away. And you, you your mind is very sharp and clear, and you see everything arises, passes away, rises, and passes away. That's why that's called knowledge of arising and passing away. <laughs> and you're doing a kind of practice that involves your mind moving back and forth between two modes of knowing. Roughly, approximately, what you're doing is you're going into the mode of awareness, and then something pops out of awareness, and then you go in the mode of attentive focus, and conceptualization and recognition, and you put a label on it. And then you let go of it, and you go back to the mode of awareness until something else pops out. And then you zoom your attention in on it, and you attach a label to what's happening. So your mind's going back and forth between these two states. And if you do that, you get really, really good at that, but it creates too much activity in your mind for piti and sukha to be present. And so if piti and sukha arise, that tells your teacher that you're not noting diligently enough. And in order to proceed along the 16 stages according to that particular method of practice, uh, you need to, to carry out the noting practice with enough diligence that the piti and sukha pass away. And so it is very much a dry insight. It's dry or moisturizing lubrication of samatha, piti, sukha, tranquility. Now, <clears throat> we can refer to the knowledge of what is and is not the path. By the way, the knowledge of what is and is not the path, where these 
10 defilements arise, is called that because what meditators are taught in this system is that Titi and Sukha are too attractive and the meditator will think, ah, oh, I'm enlightened now, this is it, this is what it's all about, and they'll cease to practice. And that's not the path. And according to this method, what is the path is you go back to noting Piti and Sukha disappear and you keep on practicing. The knowledge, that particular stage, the knowledge of what is and is not the path, which is part of stage four, knowledge of arising and passing away, is could legitimately be described as a jhana according to the way they were described by the Buddha in the sutras, because piti and sukha are present, because there is strong concentration. But the uh, the next time in the sequence of the 16 stages where you come to a stage that could uh, reasonably be called a jhana according to the sutra definitions is, I believe it's the 11th stage, it's called the knowledge of equanimity towards formations. This is after you've gone through all the dukkha jhanas, the, the knowledges of suffering, and you've arrived at a state of a very powerful concentration and very strong equanimity in which you're just watching phenomena, mostly mental phenomena at this point, arise and pass away. And it is, it's a, it's a stage in, the, in that progress, progression that's very near to the uh, knowledge of path and, and fruition knowledge. Yeah. Yes? You said the last they're, they're very, these are very nearly, uh, this, this knowledge of equanimity towards formation, it's basically the, it, uh, when we speak of access concentration as being the point where we access the jhanas from, the knowledge of equanimity towards formations is the access to insight. Okay? So this is, this is the stage that is the access to the, to the illuminating insight that's called path knowledge and fruition knowledge. Now the next stage, the, uh, the next stages that could be described as jhanas are the fruition, the, the fruition experiences because in the fruition experience there, very, there is a very strong bliss and there's very strong focus of attention. So this different system although it has been made by Upandita to uh, correspond to jhanas, he's, he's defined these vipassana jhanas. When we look at them, they're really, they're really very quite different than the jhanas that we've been talking about. Okay? Do we need them all? What's that? Do we need to be able to, to swim between the systems? No, you don't need to. You don't need to know anything about these systems at all, except that if you're using, if you're practicing within one, it's very helpful. And if you're if you were doing uh, Mahasi style Vipassana retreat, it's very helpful to understand the sixteen stages because if you practice according to the instructions, you're going to experience those stages. Yeah. I don't want to get off the subject, but I do have a question with this conversation that's been kind of going on about people getting into a state of, well, Willoughby has discussed it openly. Does that, does that have anything to do with that, like getting stuck? In that that has absolutely everything to do with okay. it. That is the dukkha and jhanas that, that, 
Well, there's, it's more than just the dukkha jnanas. Uh, there is a process in samatha vipassana, and it's going to have to happen no matter what method that you do. And what this involves, this is where all your old troublesome stuff of the past, it's been buried in the deeper subconscious recesses of your mind, comes to the fore, and that has to be dealt with. Uh, and that's, that's quite apart from the dukkha jnanas. And then another part of it is, is that uh, when your concentration becomes strong enough, even if you're meditating in such a way that PT as joy and, and, and pleasure do not arise, you're still going to experience a lot of the other physical bodily manifestations. You're going to experience feelings of tingling, burning, twitching, itching, aching, uh, rocking back and forth, jerking and twitching, uh, involuntary movements, I think uh, Willoughby described them as uh, convulsive, <laughs> you know, and I know a number of you in this room have experienced those. Um, so that too is something that as a part of Samatha Vipassana, it's a good sign. Oh, PT's arising, we just go along with it, let it happen, let it complete its process of developing maturation. Um, in the vipassana practice, you just note it and <laughs> note it and let it go. Yeah. So, um, but yes, that, that's that's exactly what the correspondence is here. Yeah. Uh, so I was wondering about what Cynthia was asking because I was having the experience of these deeper emotions relating to. I don't know if it's quite called PT, but that experience of the free-flowing energy? Yes. That either, uh, like this morning, the emotions were really blocking it, that it felt mm -hmm. like tight areas in my body, the energy wouldn't flow. Or yesterday, that the energy was was the cause of bringing these things up, you know, that like it would sort of push, push things through. Is that related to what you were just talking about, the, the way that free-flowing energy is stopped by or, or moves mm -hmm. it, or am I just talking about kind of a, a sensory image that's, that's different? No, it's, uh, they're really the same thing. That You experience this energy moving in your body, and then oh. you experience it as being blocked. And it's not unusual as you work your way through those blockages to find that those blockages are related to you know, past experiences and, or habits of mind, personality predispositions and things like that. In some, in some meditation teachings, they carry that to the extreme where everything that you experience in terms of energy movements is, uh, they try to relate it, relate it directly to some personality characteristic or some problem that you have that you need to work through. And uh, what I find is that uh, although there are occasions when you have a particular block, it, the rising energy may become blocked in your throat, and it may turn out that you have some problem, which uh, some long something from your distant past or some characteristic of your personality in the present, whatever, that can be related to uh, metaphorically to the throat chakra, to right speech, uh, so on. Sometimes that happens, but also very often you 
encounter these blocks in the energy movement, you work through the blocks in energy movement, and you never have the faintest inkling that there's any psychological component at all related to them. So uh, rather than go to either extreme, I would say obviously there is some psychological component involved in the experience of blockages of energy flow, but to assume that you need to somehow discover what all of these are and work through them is totally unnecessary. So what then is the practice when you're trying to focus on flow and the blockages are too, uh, they, they're, they're too salient, that they're just again and again and again and again drawing you <clears throat> away from the flow to the blockage? Yeah. If there's a blockage of, of if you're perceiving an energy movement and there's a clear blockage, one of the easiest ways to work with that, and I would suggest the first one that you try, is the principle that the energy follows attention. And so you focus on the energy that's blocked and you try with your mind to move it past the blockage or you shift your awareness beyond the point of the blockage and you and you, you dig in and try to detect the detect the sensation of energy beyond that point until it begins to emerge. And very often that will uh, help you move through the block. Sometimes that doesn't work though. Sometimes you just have to uh, take the, uh, the blocked energy experience as your meditation object and just uh, anything that pulls you away from your normal meditation object very strongly and very consistently, you can always just take that as your alternative meditation object and wait and see what it has to teach you. If there's some psychological thing associated with it, then that gives it an opportunity to come up. Some memory, some emotion, you know, something like that. And then you can just confront and accept it. So if you're trying to do that single-pointedness, and the issue is that this blockage is drawing you, drawing you, drawing you, you recommend giving up the single-pointedness for now and working with blockage? Well, you can, take, you can take the blockage as the object of your single-pointed attention. It's not going to be a suitable object to try to enter John in, for example, but for absolutely every other aspect of the practice, it's extremely well-suited. Uh, as a matter of fact, it has the tendency to draw your attention and hold it, so it's even easier to be in single-pointed attention on it. And you're still training your mind. Attention is still being stabilized on an intentionally chosen object. And so the training effect is just as just as good as it would be if you were on the breath or some other intentionally chosen object. I'd like to add to that. Yes. So I've got that's my my state, right? I've got knots, blockages, whatever you want to call them. And uh, so in fact going to John's at this point is kind of pointless. It's just not gonna happen. Um, but as you said, you're, uh, it, it wants to draw me in. And these knots want to draw me in. And it's been this way mm, seven or eight months. And they are fabulous for pulling my attention in to the point where, yes, it's very easy to meditate that way. Focus on that. 
feel the knot, and sometimes they release. These knots are releasing slowly, and um, not long ago it, it's gotten such that there are so few knots that around Christmas time I found it hard to meditate because I lost my objects of meditation. <laughs> so, anyway, I just thought I would share. Thank you. That's very good. I think that would be very helpful for people. Yeah. Um, my experience today was I stopped, <clears throat> I stopped calling those blockages by all those names. I decided they were sukha. I like contraction. Mm -hmm. I just really felt like, okay, I come out of the closet. I like contraction. <laughs> That's good too. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. And that's the only, because I've been going into them, and until I started putting love into them, they were scared. You're absolutely right. All of these things, the, the, the energy for resistance is actually coming from, I mean, the, the, when you, a blockage is a resistance to energy flow. And you have to stop resisting the blockage before before that knot can un, untangle. Because as long as you keep resisting the blockage, it keeps it solid. And, and it keeps it so solid, the energy's not going to move. You know, and the same thing's true of if you have a very traumatic memory or a really strong emotion that comes up. As long as you resist that, you're actually feeding it strength. You have to turn it around. As you say, love it, accept it, be okay with it. All right, you can be there. Well, until recently, I didn't know I wasn't accepting it. I thought I was paying attention to it, but I was actually doing it because I was not giving it love and accepting it. I'm trying mm -hmm. to figure it out and, and still paying too much attention mm -hmm. to the wrong way. Well, what will happen sometimes, I don't know if this happened with you, but you have something like that that comes up, and you put your attention on it and it dissolves and goes away. And then you develop the idea that, oh, this is a solution. This is how I get rid of it. But then you're still coming to the place of, you're not allowing it to be there. You're just going in there and you're going to demolish it with permission. <laughs> it doesn't really work. You, and then and when, that, when that happens, yeah, you've got, to, you've got to take the next step. You've got to love it. You've got to... You've got to how did you say you came out of the closet? That you... It's not that I love it. It's that it is love. Well, it's not that it's love. It's just it's, that it feels it's, good. Contraction it's good. feels yeah. good. Yeah, that's good. That whatever it is, you're completely undoing your own internal resistance to it. And since it is part of you, you're undoing its resistance as well. So, yeah. Sometimes when I welcome, whatever that is, mm -hmm. let's say maybe it's a strong feeling, um, and I, because I do believe it's very important to love it, to welcome it, and 
pay attention. Sometimes it dissipates then. And what I do, which seems seems to respond, is I invite it back. Mm-hmm. I ask it to come back and say, you know, I'd really like to have this back. And I, I wait very patiently and openly. It arises. Mm-hmm. It's, I find that amazing. <laughs> that we can actually invite that sort of thing. That's right. You know, yeah. it, it responds. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. <laughs> but it is a part of our own mind. And uh, as, long as, as long as our mind is divided against itself in any way, in any form, you know, we, we, are, we are not going to be optimally what we can be. So, so what the... Uh, I'm sorry, John? John? I'm John, yeah. John. So uh, I was wondering uh, this John's opinion on, on what that John was saying regarding. Uh, so 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 your suggestion was that uh, if the blockages are too bad to say you know John is not for me today right is that right and and, and to, to work with the blockages uh, would you uh, would that be your advice as well. To, to do which here? I say that. <laughs> Sorry, there's John, John, and John. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> so uh, if you're trying to do the single point of this, and yeah. the blockages are too salient, would your advice be to kind of say, you know, John is not for me today, um, and deal with the blockages, or to, like, uh, kind of persist at it and see if... The single point is well. See, see, that's the decision that you have to make. And if, and and what I'm saying is, when that is there so strongly that you can't just set it aside and and proceed, then turn the tables on it and take it as your object at that point. Do exactly what he said. Yeah. But you have to decide yourself. I mean, you could a person could potentially exaggerate this advice and then. Every trivial distraction that comes up, they want to take that as their object, you know. And definitely, that that's not going to be, that's going to be counterproductive. But there is a point when you realize, okay, I I I can't just ignore this and leave it be. I'm going to have to take some more direct action, and that's where you do it. Yeah. Wanda. Um, first, I want to say thank you for this handout. It's, a, it's an amazing amount of information and the things that you've pulled together and the way you've presented it. Um, there are a few things, though, that I had question marks and I think I'm still big on. And you said that you might talk a little bit more about the formless aspects. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of the relationship between form and formlessness and how that, you mentioned space in here. Uh, several times in, in different ways. Mm-hmm. So how the form and formlessness relates to space and then the nimitta, the appearance, and the appearance of the meditation object. And I think those are sort of are, are related in a lot of ways. Okay, yes, those are a couple of things that I can say a little bit more about. Let me go back to one other thing that was brought up earlier by, can't see that far away. Yes. Chris, by Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, which she said there were five hindrances that she didn't know what they were about. 
Okay. This is, uh, five hindrances is a very useful concept, useful tool in, in Buddhism. And those five, uh, there actually, there is uh, an excerpt from a sutra there uh, where the Buddha is dis distinguishing between wholesome and unwholesome absorptions, where those hindrances are listed. The first one is usually called sense desire. And I usually, I, I find that too limiting. It's worldly desire. It's desire for things of the sense realm that your mind believes are going to make you happy and keep you from becoming unhappy. So, desire for the sense realm is the first uh, uh, hindrance. The second is aversion or ill will. Uh, these negative emotional states uh, in their entire range from impatience through to hatred. The third hindrance usually is described as sloth and torpor. I prefer to refer to it as... Uh, Resistance, procrastination, and fatigue. <laughs> I think, is that different from the mental dullness that you also refer to? As uh, the mental dullness is uh, is the it's, it's an aspect of torpor, mm -hmm. but um, the that dullness is uh, of two origins. One is if you are mentally or physically tired, right? The other is because you are focusing your attention, the mind is turned inward, it becomes de-energized, and you need to train the mind not to do that. So, so it's the same dullness, but for that particular um, hindrance, I usually am interpreting that as more concerned with the dullness that comes from genuine mental or physical fatigue. And I tend to think of the other kind of dullness as an inherent part of what happens in meditation and part of the training, that you train your mind not, not to sink into dullness. The third or fourth hindrance is agitation of the mind that is the result of worry and remorse. Worry about what's going to happen because of this, that, or the other thing. Remorse about things that you've done, or guilt, or things like this. And so these are major psychological hindrances that produce agitation in the mind. Uh, and just in passing, the best way to prevent those hindrances from coming into existence is through the practice of virtue. If you, if you live virtuously, if you keep the precepts, if you practice the perfections, then you will have no cause for worry and remorse. Then the fifth hindrance is skeptical doubt. I must be doing this wrong. <laughs> or, I can't do this. There's something wrong with me. I'm not like everybody else. 
Is it always self-referential, or could or, it be, no. uh, this path is stupid? No, that was the next one I was going to do. <laughs> or, this is the wrong method. This is not good. Or, my teacher is full of crap. <laughs> or, this whole Buddhism business is nonsense. I've got to find something that... <laughs> it's all the same thing. It's skeptical doubt. So those are the five hindrances. It feels like the self-referential part, I can't, I'm not able to, Is it feels qualitatively different than the other, like, oh, the teacher's no good, or I don't like sitting in this room. Yeah, well, it, it is qualitatively different. It's two qualitatively different forms of the same thing. One is, is you see, skeptical doubt is kind of a reverse faith. It's it's faith that I that it's not going to work. And the two qualitative kinds are who you're blaming. You're going to blame yourself or you're going to blame someone else. But it's still the same thing. It's not going to work. I know it's not going to work. And, and that keeps you from trying. That's the whole problem with skeptical doubt. Because there is a kind of doubt that's really good. It's like, okay, maybe so, but let me find out for myself. That's really healthy doubt. But skeptical doubt is what keeps you from trying because you're already convinced that it's not going to work. And some people have some people have a major problem with that in themselves. Everything in their life they've doubted their ability to do. Or that somehow they are worthy to succeed and reap the fruits of what they do. And if that's in there, if that's in your makeup, you're going to have to deal with it because it's going to come up really strongly over and over again in your meditation practice. So, but the wonderful thing about the meditation practice is it's going to bring you face to face with it and you can get past it once and for all and eliminate it from every other aspect of your life. So there wouldn't just happen to be handy antidotes to these just by the numbers thing to do. Uh, yes, you cultivate you cultivate meditation, and the there uh, the the things that we identified earlier as jhana factors mm -hmm. are also identified as the specific antidotes to each of these five. So unification of mind, ekagata, is the specific antidote to sense desire. Piti, meditative joy, is the specific antidote to aversion and ill will. Directed attention is the specific antidote to sloth and torpor, or as I put it, uh, uh, resistance, procrastination, and fatigue. Um, sukha, pleasure and happiness, is a specific antidote to the agitation due to worry and remorse. So happiness overcomes worry and remorse. And sustained attention is the specific antidote to skeptical doubt, which is a way of saying, just keep doing it and you'll get past it. It'll work even if you don't think so. Yeah, that's right. But it for sure won't work if you don't try. <laughs> You're right. um, it really is systematic, isn't it? It is very systematic. <laughs> yeah. 
it's it's wonderfully systematic. Every now and then you'll come to places where things have been bent maybe a little bit too much to make them fit into a nice system. Yeah. But. <laughs> uh, I've heard this quote repeated a bunch of times. I think it's from uh, Bob Thurman. Uh, it's, uh, Christians love God, Buddhists love lists. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, somebody wrote a book, uh, Buddhism by the Numbers. <laughs> Uh, and there's one whole part of the Pali Canon, which is exactly that. It's all the sutras that involve one thing, and then the next collection is all that involve two things. <laughs> it's called the collection of threes. Then there's the collection of fours, the collection of fives, the collection of sixes. <laughs> so that is really true. Okay. So let me go on then to uh, formless jhanas and what was the other one? Oh, nimitta appearance. Okay. The formless jhanas are variations on the fourth jhana. You, as you go through these four jhanas, you progressively become more and more completely removed from the material realm the sense realm, but let's call it the material realm because we're going to refer to space here. Um, in, the, in the fourth jhana, and this is even true of the deepest version of the fourth jhana, there still is one powerful element of what we call form that's present. There's one powerful connection to the material realm. And that's the sense of location in space and limitations in space. And so the first formless jhana, a practitioner has achieved the fourth jhana, the next refinement is to eliminate that by taking as uh, by taking infinite space and by essentially expanding boundaries until you have the perception of infinite space, and you can take that as the object of that jhana. And then there is no longer, you are no longer located in a particular place in space. From there, the, the next formless jhana is very, very easy to, and that is infinite consciousness, because it follows pretty well automatically that in order to have a perception of infinite space, you must have infinite consciousness. And so it just takes a small shift in your focus to experience the, uh, the uh, jhana of infinite consciousness. So the next form jhana beyond that is the jhana of nothingness, no-thingness. It is the experience of objectlessness that is built on this foundation of perception of infinite consciousness in infinite space. So in, to an infinite consciousness in infinite space, there is no, there's no object, there can be, and there's no, no thingness to be taken as object. But there is a subtle trick in this that the mind is playing. For example, 
<clears throat> if you parked your car outside the door and then you left here, you opened the door and looked out and there's no car there, you're going to have a perception of no carness. Right? It is very much a perception, and it's a very strong, powerful perception. You've had this a lot of times, right? You've opened the drawer and it's not there. <laughs> and this is because what your what your mind is doing in an ordinary perception, your mind is constructing uh, a concept that consciousness takes as its object to account for sensory experience. And if there's nothing there, then it's the absence of that sensory experience that the mind then constructs an object, which is the no-carness or no-thingness. So this, the third formless jhana still involves perception and it still involves a mental construct, a sankara. But the construct is the concept. The construct is, corresponds to the absence of anything. So it's the base of no thingness. But there's still another level that you can go beyond this. Now, in the terminology of the sutras, uh, non-perception is the state is a state of mind. It is a state of consciousness. It's the state of consciousness when you're in deep sleep, in anesthesia unconscious, okay? What we would normally refer to as unconscious is what's called non-perception. And even where you're having a perception of the absence of something, the base of no-thingness is a perception. So the next jhana, the fourth of the formless jhanas, is called uh, neither perception, because you're, the mind's not taking any constructed in uh, any construct as an object. So it's neither perception, nor is it non-perception. You have not lost consciousness. You've not, you're not in deep sleep. You're not anesthetized. So it is a state where you are conscious and fully aware, but you are not conscious of anything. It's like, an, it's like a suspension of the act of perception. The act of perception is incompleted. So that um, aspect of self that exercises the faculty of perception is, that's another layer of self that's banned. That's another layer of self that has been dispensed with. It's a very nebulous kind of jhana. And you wouldn't have mindfulness, you wouldn't have be fully aware? You do, well... You, you are conscious, your consciousness is in the form of awareness, and it is awareness of the base of neither perception or non-perception. So we could still say that there is mindfulness uh, of a sort here, but, there's, there's, but not in the form of an ordinary perception. There is one more state beyond this that I didn't mention in this handout, but just for completeness I'll mention it now. It's called the cessation of feeling and perception. It's not non-perception, it's a cessation of perception. It's accompanied by the cessation of feeling, and it also corresponds to the cessation of formations. It is nirvana. Yeah. The next state, the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, niroda is 
cessation, and it is the cessation of feeling and perception is a technical name given to it. It is nirvana, and there are two kinds of nirvana. One is nirvana with remainder, which is a kind of nirvana that is experienced in life momentarily by a person when they are experiencing uh, path or fruition experiences of any of the any of the four stages of awakening and it is the nirvana in which a buddha dwells throughout the remainder of his physical existence in the world that's called the nirvana with remainder nirvana without remainder is the pari nirvana it is the nirvana that follows upon the uh, dissolution of the mind and the body at the time of the death of a buddha and the other and it's called nirvana without remainder no no more body no more mind no more the other nirvana without remainder is the cessation of feeling and perception. It is this ninth state that is beyond the jhana of needed perception or non-perception. And what it says about this state, you know, and I can only tell you what it says about it. What it says is that this is only achievable by arhats and non-returners. No one else can achieve this ninth state. When they achieve this ninth state, they, they are in exactly the same nirvana that they will be in following the death of their body. And that, uh, as a matter of fact, as if I understand the references to it that I'm familiar with, if a non-returner enters this cessation, he will arise from the sensation as an arhat. What's the distinction between a non-returner and an arhat? What's that? What's the difference between a non-returner and an arhat? Well, technically, uh, a non-returner still has the inherent sense of being a separate self. And so, although there's no desire for anything uh, of the sense realm, or no, no aversion and no desire, there still is attachment to existence. And an arhat has overcome the inherent sense of being a separate self. And so there is no desire for either existence nor non-existence because there's no sense of, of being something separate that could either exist or non-exist. Can you say again the name of this ninth state? Did you call that Paranirvana? It is, it's Nirvana without remainder. And, uh, Pari nirvana is also nirvana without remainder. So those are the two nirvana, those are the two occasions of nirvana without remainder. One is when a non-returner or an arhat enters the cessation, and the other is upon the death of the body of an arhat. So for the form of uh, the form um, stages of jhanas, there are, it's often talking about qualities. Yeah. And so, especially uh, the fourth 
uh, state here, neither perception nor non-perception. There's, there's, um, there's energy or a process that's still going on, but it's not, we wouldn't characterize qualities of it. That's, that's right. There is really nothing to say about it. Okay. So, so shall I be silent? Um, so, it makes me think of something I've heard often, but I never really think I understand, and that's signlessness. Is which? Signlessness. Signlessness. Right, which is often put up there with um, no separate self, and mm-hmm. you know, as being one of the main. Um, aspects that we aspire to. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, signlessness or anamita. That is, uh, it's actually different than this eighth jhana. <coughs> but what it is, the sign being referred to or the appearance being referred to is the appearance of. Uh, of substantiality, of, uh, if not permanence, endurance. The appearance that things have, and the opposite of that appearance is the direct experience of anicca, which is, we, we say impermanence, but is really change, constant change, flux. So signless, signlessness is the knowledge of the uh, essentially emptiness too. You could you could say it's knowledge of emptiness, but it's it's, it's knowledge of anicca of impermanence. It is the experience of having cut through the illusion, the appearance, the solidity, s- substantiality of self-existent entities, which endure even if only temporarily. And you're saying that's not comparable to this uh, jhana of neither perception nor non-perception. No, to have have the direct experience uh, of, uh, have the direct experience of things in their empty and impermanent nature is not the same thing as, because a person can experience uh, this jhana. So somebody who practices j- the jhanas can experience this jhana and not have that realization, not have that knowledge. The Buddha's second teacher uh, was teaching, the, teaching this particular jhana, the base of neither perception nor non-perception. But he was not enlightened and had not had insight into impermanence, no self, and emptiness. But the the jhanas and maybe particularly the formless ones might help us along. All of the jhanas, all of the jhanas will help tremendously, um, and that's that's basically what the Buddha said: is practice the jhanas with mindfulness, and insight will arise. Uh, but if you practice the jhanas as trance states, which is what the Brahmins had tended to do. 
Um, it, without that kind of mindfulness, then, then you would not. And uh, if you look at the jhanas that the Brahmins practiced, getting into a lot of historical digression, maybe boring everybody, I don't know. But if you look at what the Brahmins did, they did jhanas based on casinas and on the, on the elements, um, uh, earth, water, fire, and air. And they became completely absorbed in them. The Buddha set all of that aside and defined the jhanas in terms of the jhana factors, all of which are aspects of mind that you can be aware of. And so it, it became then a practice of mindfulness rather than a practice of trance state. So all of, all of this has helped, thank you. And, but the nimitta. The nimitta. Nimitta means appearance. And uh, to enter jhanas with, uh, uh, with an object, focusing your attention on an object, that object has to be of a nature that uh, is uh, conducive to entering into absorption. All, all of our ordinary perceptions are mental constructs built out of other mental constructs uh, essentially to, complain, to, to explain sensory experience. And they're extremely complex and, and, and complicated fabrications. So, Could you give some example, an example? Well, <clears throat> for example, if you, if you tried to enter uh, if you tried to enter jhana with the breath as uh, as an object, it's not going to work because breath is a concept. It presumes body and it presumes air, atmosphere, and it presumes space and directionality in and out. And actually, we could list a thousand other things that it presumes. So it's a very, our ordinary perception of breath is an extremely complex construct and it's not suitable. When we get to the sixth stage, the appearance of breath is altered. And when you're having this uh, experience of the, of the whole body with the breath, you're not experiencing the body in such a compact, complexly fabricated way. You are having a direct experience of sensations, more or less unmoderated sensations, right? And as a matter of fact, this is what happens when you reach the sixth stage anyway. You've been observing the sensations of the breath. We make a point of calling them sensations of the breath all of the time. It's very important to do that because as your meditation proceeds, at about the sixth stage, that's really what it is. It's no longer breath. It's the sensations which happen to be related to the concept of breath. And those sensations are suitable as an object to enter jhana with. And so um, you can, at the sixth stage, what this is, is this is the second kind of nim nimitta. The first nimitta, or first appearance, is breath, the normal way we normally perceive it, as a complex construct. That's called the parikama nimitta. Parikama means preliminary, or ordinary, or beginners, or initial, or it has connotations like that. But when you get to the sixth stage, the appearance changes and it becomes 
the Ugaha Nimitta. Ugaha is acquired. It's, it's acquired as a result of the practice and the refinement of your perception, so that now you are just experiencing sensations in a much more direct way. And in the sixth and seventh stages, that can become even more refined to where the sensations become unrecognizable. You might have the experience that you're observing the sensations of the breath, but you don't know which sensations belong to the in-breath or out-breath anymore because you're not attaching any concepts to them. And you can instantly find out, you know, you can recognize and attach the concept, but your mind is not bothering to do that anymore. You can go a little deeper into it, and the qualities of warmth, coolness, movement, uh, sharpness, and everything else that, that you could identify within the sensations of the breath all those recognizable qualities disappear and it becomes just like uh, a vibratory phenomenon. And uh, so, so this is, these are the forms that this second appearance can take, can take, acquired appearance, and it is suitable for entering jhana. Then, um, and that's using the term nimitta or appearance in its proper speaking. Now there's a third nimitta uh, it's called the Patibhaga Nimitta, or the mental counterpart appearance. And if you follow this progression through the tenth stage, the Patibhaga Nimitta will arise. This is an appearance of the breath that is not sensation anymore. It's rather the, uh, the impact that the sensations arriving in the mind have. It produces an imprint in the mind. And that appears, and then you can take that as your meditation object for entering the deepest of all jhanas. Okay, so there's these three, three different appearances stage-wise that the, the meditation object takes over time. The preliminary appearance, the acquired appearance of just sensation. And those are two extremes. Sensations arrive, uh, let, let that represent raw sensations, they enter the mind and they are conceptualized. And so here is just color and shape, and here is a car. Usually we see a car. The acquired appearance would be like just seeing the color and shape with no attaching, no label or recognition and concept to it. Between these two is where this Patibhaga Nimitta this mental counterpart image lies. Sensations enter the mind, and then before they have been, preconceptually, before they have been processed, uh, in this particular state, you can become aware of it, and you can take that as your object. It is independent of the sensations that gave rise to it. It is not a complex con construct. It's not a conceptual construct. It's between the two. And so that, that is the nimitta or meditation object that's used for entering the deepest jhanas. Now, the other, if you'll notice when I went through these, you're using the second nimitta, the ugaha, to enter the ultralight jhanas, and we're using the patibhaga, the mental counterpart image, to enter into the deepest jhanas. Well, what are we using to enter into the L-I-T-E jhanas and the L-I-G-H-T jhanas. Well, the L-I-T-E jhanas, you're actually using the uh, uh, Piti Sukha 
of access. And since that is something that is pretty straightforward and simple and in the mind, it's a suitable object. And I haven't ever really heard Lee Brasington and the people that teach those genres call that a nimita. I guess they didn't feel like it was necessary to. But the people that teach the L-I-G-H-T jhanas, uh, uh, which uses the light, the illumination from PT as a meditation object, they have usurped the word nimitta and attached it to the light. And the light is not an appearance of the original meditation object, because Paak and uh, uh, Ajahn Brahmavamsa teach meditation using the breath, and the light absolutely is not an appearance of the breath. It is a completely different object that they switch to once the illumination arises, but they take the label nimitta and they attach it to it so that it will be consistent with what it says in the Vasudhi Maga and things like that. So the, so the, the, the nimitta for the deepest jhanas isn't necessarily a light? No, it's not necessary. You, you can enter the deepest jhanas with a light nimitta. The, the light does make, make a very good nimitta, but you don't need to. You don't need to. You can wait and allow the, a, a breath nimitta to arise. And it, this is preconceptual, and it's also, it's, 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 you know, you have the, the sensory gateways. It's beyond the sensory gateways, but it's not yet at the level of conceptualization. So the experience of it tends to be uh, uh, synesthetic. Um, and it's also, in the case of the breath nimitta, when it arises, you'll see the, the nimitta corresponds to the entire breath simultaneously. The breath is a cyclic phenomenon that repeats itself over and over again. If you ever looked at a, a, a oscilloscope screen, like a heart monitor, you know, and it traces the shape of the of EKG, and it traces it in the same place over and over again. And so it appears to be just, it's just renewing the same image over and over again. This is actually what's happening with the breath nimitta. It's an imprint on the mind that with each new breath cycle, it is renewed and it becomes conceptualized. And you can focus in and examine the parts of it and see, you know, 6, 8, 10, 12, 16 different parts to the in-breath and as many different parts to the out-breath. But you can also come to this place where you can see the mental counterpart image, and you're essentially seeing the entire breath cycle in its entirety all at once, and it just gets refreshed with every new cycle. Yes? Why does that produce a deeper jhana than the light, L-I-G-H-T jhana? It doesn't necessarily... Uh, let me put it this way. It's not necessary to use that to achieve the deepest jhanas because you can achieve the deepest jhanas using light as well. But those who are using the light uh, as a nimitta to enter the jhanas, the light shows up sooner than does the patibhaga nimitta. And so what they're doing is their starting point is a less completely refined uh, stage of concentration, corresponding to stage eight or nine of the ten stages. 
but they can continue to deepen and refine their concentration. And so those jhanas can eventually become just as deep. But the, since the Padibhaga Nimitta doesn't even arise until you've reached stage 10, you've already, you've already basically perfected concentration. Okay? Yes? I don't want to take us off the subject, but um, someone <coughs> asked a question earlier today that was, I don't remember who asked it, but it was, a, I think, a good question about how to practice the jhanas or when, or when to practice them or how to incorporate them into our yes. practice. And <coughs> this may not be the moment, but I just wanted to remind you that you said at some yes. point during today <laughs> you. you wanted to... I think this is exactly the moment. I mean, we've gotten into stuff... We're getting into the kind of technical stuff that I really love to talk about, but I'm sure must be going beyond some of you's interest. So, <laughs> mm, anyway, so let's let's back up and let's let's take what we learned this weekend and talk about how to use it. Now, I would recommend that you use <clears throat> that you take this understanding of the jhanas that you have. And you use them to improve the quality of your concentration and mindfulness. Go ahead and um, work with this jhana that you, uh, for those of you that have already had an opportunity to experience, see if you can uh, repeat that and uh, see if you can develop some skill around entering the jhana, remaining in the jhana, arising from the jhana when you plan to, and then reviewing the jhana. And we didn't really get into the reviewing, but that's an important habit, is that as soon as you come out of the jhana, you reflect. And specifically, to begin with, I mean, you're going to do your own exploration, but to give you some orientation where you begin with, recollect the state of your mind before you entered the jhana, the state of your mind in the jhana, and the state of your mind now, after you've arisen from the jhana, with a view towards what is there and what is not there. As the, as the description of Sariputra's practice that's given in the handout there, you know, all these different, you could, you could even use that as a guideline, all these different qualities of mind to examine them, what was there, what was not there, how is it different, how did it change, how did it arise, how did it pass away. Just start off though initially at least taking a moment of 30 seconds or a minute just to reflect and see if you can remember each of these states of mind, of these three stages. This will also be very helpful in your becoming able to more easily enter the jhana because sometimes you'll be more successful than others. And the more, it, the more frequently you look back at exactly what was going on in your mind, when you entered the jhana, the more clear it's going to become to you exactly what the conditions are that you need to create to enter jhana, and you'll get more skilled at being able to enter jhana. Now, you use the, just practicing the first jhana in this way until such time as um, you get really good at it and you start to get tired of it, and then you'll be ready to move on to second jhana. <laughs> the other thing that you could do, you see, if you're practicing this, your concentration, keep doing your regular meditation practice as a part of this, but practice 
periodically, depending on how much time you sit. If you sit twice a day, you could make one a jhana sit and one just your regular samatha vipassana sit. Um, if you, say, sit only for 45 minutes or an hour a day, what you might do is on those days when your concentration is really good and you think you're going to be able to enter jhana, well, go ahead and, and on those occasions practice entering the jhana. So that's that's the way that I would suggest that that you do it. Depending on the amount of time you have to meditate, either do both or else do the jhana practice when you say, hey, I'm really, this, I'm in a good place to do this today and then and do it then. And let your skill, skill level improve. Um, because the tremendous utility of these lighter jhanas is that it is going to rapidly improve the quality of your concentration. If you practice in the way I've described, it probably won't be very long before you find consistently you're sitting down and you focus your attention on the breath of the nose and your mind is really quiet. And when that happens consistently, you don't need to go through all this rigmarole of expanding your awareness and using the experience of the whole body with the breath as the meditation object to enter jhana. We didn't really get a chance to do this in detail, but you have got some description to take it with you. But what to do then, when you have that kind of stillness, is practice entering the light jhana using piti and sukha to enter the jhana. Okay? When your meditation starts to have the qualities that, that uh, are described for stage seven, then use the stage seven state as an access for entering the light jhanas using Titi Sukha as your meditation object. And see what sort of skill you can develop with that. If you do that, that should help you. Titi will become progressively stronger. And by the way, if you've been doing the one kind of jhana and then you do the other, the first time you enter the first jhana using Titi and Sukha as a meditation object, you're probably going to be quite amazed by how strong the sensations of Piti are. So, but that's all right. They will calm down. But you just, you just work with them and keep going in that way. Um, And tell me how this goes. You see, I, my background is deep jhana practice. I became acquainted with the lighter jhanas more recently. And I've been guiding people individually to use these to enhance the quality of their practice. Now I've given this information to a whole group of you. And one of the questions in my mind, and I don't know the answer, one of the questions in my mind is it better to stay with the ultralight jhanas and when you've mastered the first jhana, do second jhana and then third jhana and fourth jhana before you start working with the light jhanas? Or, as I suspect is going to happen, you're going to find that the quality of your concentration becomes suitable for practicing the light jhanas, probably in the course of becoming skilled at entering the ultralight first jhana. And I don't know if maybe the most appropriate thing to do 
is to just switch from ultralight first jhana to light first jhana. So uh, we're, we're covering new territory here, and I, I wish I could give you more specific guidance, but you'll teach me and then I'll give other people more specific guidance, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so please, please do let me, keep me informed of how your practice is going so that I can guide you, but also so that, you know, we can get this sense of what what is most productive and perhaps it'll turn out that for different people it's different things, but we'll also discover what the circumstances are that dictate one one approach in preference to the other. Okay? Questions about how to practice this? I just wondered, as a practical matter, are you going to keep up the tea sessions at the Seven Cups on Thursday afternoons, and is that a place where people can come to check in with you? I, I think we'll keep going the, until... I've sampled every kind of tea they have and gotten tired of them all. We should have yours. And when are these sessions? On the first Thursday of each month uh, at uh, about 2 o'clock in the afternoon at uh, Seven Cups Tea House. And it's just sort of an informal um, sangha discussion. I I, I circumvented an issue there. That word. <laughs> it's not quite clear whether we get together and we just get to know each other socially, or we're, whether we try to to talk about dharma at these tea sessions. So we'll make it a sangha discussion. So there, there will be both. <laughs> yes. This is back to a technical question. The uh, mental counterpart image is that going to be there in all genres? but you don't pay attention when you start to go into the deep? No, the mental counterpart, you don't actually have sufficient focus and clarity to pick up on that until you become very advanced in samatha practice. That wasn't quite my question. My question was, is it there? Oh, is it there? Yes, it's there. What Every, every single perception you have involves sensory input, that mental counterpart image is created, and then the mental counterpart image is what's processed by your mind, which comes up with car, or my friend Joe, or flat tire, or whatever it happens to be. So, then it would also make sense to me, I don't know the one to 10 stages, so this may be obvious if I didn't know it, but it seems to me that one could jump, one could use the mental counterpart image as the meditation well, see, it's always there for it's every person. One always... It's it's always there for every person in the world, whether they've ever meditated or not, no matter what stage they're at. It's being able to focus on it. It's yeah. being able to perceive it. And if one could, one could use it. If one similar to the way one uses breath or light. If if one could, yes, if one could. And, and okay, you're absolutely right. I don't know for certain that there isn't somebody who's going to be able to pick up on that before they reach uh, the tenth stage of Samatha. Thank you. Yes? Yeah. So are we trying to get in that into that part of our nervous system that is is before we we assign identity to car and just live where it's a blur of moving color? Uh, that is, you know, it isn't a car until you call it one? 
Well, what we are trying, it's not so much that we're trying to get there and live there, because that wouldn't be terribly practical. <laughs> but we're trying to get there to have a direct experience of that, because having a direct experience of that is going to erase our attachment to the view we have now that things are really the way they look like us, look like to us. But when you go there, at least the little I know about it is that um, you you don't get to stay there. You get to be right or wrong about what you see. You get to to um, like I I just had this experience while over lunch. I was out walking to my car and coming back, and right next to the Sangha is a tree that's been TP'd. And it's in the immediate yard next to us, and because of where it was placed in proximity and the fact that I was, you know, kind of, oh, isn't it nice to hang at the Sangha? I only saw it out of the corner of my eyes, and I swear to you it was prayer flags. <laughs> and, and then I, I went, prayer flags next to, how not, oh, wait. Yeah. And so I, I got to hang them with that assignment of illusion instead of that I saw a fluttering neither toilet paper nor prayer flag. I didn't get to stay with the fluttering. I <clears throat> fell right down into what I decided it had to be because mm -hmm. of where it was located and what I was tripping on. Yeah, right. And so... What I'm asking is, if we can't live in that pre-processing interval, we, we, we get to spend a lot of time being wrong. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, uh, well, you see, we, the way it is, we spend a lot of time being wrong, and we don't even know it. So the first step is we still might spend a long time being a lot of time being wrong, but we know it, which leads to the subsequent step, which is that we're not wrong quite so often as we used to be. <laughs> and we're not attached to it. And you're not attached to it. And that's especially, that's the really important part, is that you're not attached to it. Yeah. Oops, I'm still attached. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and... And you don't go around trying to force yourself to be non-attached. What you do is you practice mindfulness, and you let mindfulness bring you to a place where you really and truly aren't attached. So in the meantime, you just remind yourself that, well, this is probably just a view I'm attached to. But will the unattached person see... Neither toilet paper nor prayer flags, or will the unattached person be so clear that they will obviously see toilet paper, but they won't make any sense? Well, see, that question assumes that toilet paper is what's really there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Done now. You got me. You're going to love this. <laughs> yes? I have one more question about um, the metal counterpart image. Is there a correlation with 
I'm not sure how to ask this. The intensity of the counterpart image, is there a correlation between that intensity with the intensity of the original image? Mm. The, uh, okay, the, the experience of intensity is a reflection of, uh, how, how to put it, it's of, of how fully conscious you are. Okay. So, and to get to the place of being able to observe the mental counterpart image, you have to have already really refined the the power of your consciousness, and your perceptions will become very intense. And as a matter of fact, this is something that. In the course of your practice, you are going to have those experiences where some, for some reason or another in the course of your meditation, you've been doing things that greatly enhance the power of your conscious awareness. And then when the meditation is over with, you're going to get up and, well, everything is going to see so, seem so clear and so immediate and, you know, and that's going to last for a little while. But and, and you're going to cultivate that, and it'll be, you're, 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 the consciousness you bring to any experience is going to become is going to bring more intensity to the way that you experience whatever it is, and that has to develop before you're going to. Well, once again, I'll qualify this. As far as I know, that has to happen before somebody can be aware of the mental counterpart sign. I think I'm again asking something a little bit different. Like if I'm in, say, a tunnel. And I, and I say something really softly, you get a very soft echo. Uh-huh. This is sort of the model I've got here. And if you say, if I yell, then I get a very loud echo. So it's not so much the difference of you know, when somebody is enlightened or not enlightened. It's just, you know, does it have, does a loud original image create a loud mental counterpart in a soft well, original create a soft mental yeah. counterpart. The intensity of the original sensory stimulus yeah. is going to be reflected in the intensity of the mental counterpart. Okay. Yes, okay. that's true. Yeah. yeah, and it's just part of a continuum. You know, if we kept going down the continuum, we come to the point where um, the uh, a sensory input is subliminal. It's making an imprint on the mind, which we can tell because we can do tests a minute later or a few seconds later, and we can tell that that sensory input did register on the mind, but but it didn't go to the next stage where it was conceptualized and you were conscious of it. So there is this definite relationship between stimulus intensity and the, let's call it the quality of the mental counterpart that's formed. Okay, so that's what you're much. asking. Yeah, Thank you very much. That's exactly what I was asking. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, it is now 3 o'clock. Um, I had proposed doing another meditation before we left. Can you give us a short break first? Well, it would have to be a short break, yeah. So that's what we'll do. Let's take a short break. And we'll do a meditation together, and then, uh, and then we'll bid adieu till we see each other next time. <laughs>
and I hope your practice goes really well on your feet. I'm looking forward to the feedback from your ongoing practice and where it leads you. And I'll say this much, I'm really pleased with the results that, that you told me that you got here this weekend. I had no idea how well it was going to work. It has worked better than I had hoped. So, thank you. For, you're such good students. Such a good teacher. Now we're going to go home and be out of this pandemic. Yeah. 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 This, this little hot house of the obstruction, and we're going to go. It is not the same. But it, we don't have any. And the possibilities are endless. I mean, who knows? We might do a two-week-long genre retreat together, and then you'll really get to go into these things. 